morning. The first reading is from Matthew 27, verses 11 to 31, and it can be found on page 998 in the church Bibles, which are in front of you. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the loud, louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. 
He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Thank you, Philippa. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you. And uh, for those who are visiting here, my name is Bruce Clark, the Senior Minister. And on behalf of St Matthews, great you can join us. And for those who are watching online, great to have you join us as well. Well, let's stop and reflect on this most holy of days. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this incredible, wonderful, yet striking, stunning event, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand it, to believe it, and to continue to receive Christ as our King this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, death is typically not a topic that many Australians, by choice, will seek to dwell upon. We don't experience death today like former years. If you go back 120, 200, 300 years ago... Uh, death was something that was far more commonplace and far more experienced in terms of in the home. Today it happens in hospitals, in nursing homes, and that's not a criticism of them, they do an incredible job. But in many ways, death is sanitised and removed from us. And so when it does occur, it can be quite shocking and confronting. And I've seen this even when it's a loved one who's reached an old age there is still this shock and abruptness about when a loved one has died and we're not prepared for it. And yet here we are today and we're remembering and not just remembering, we are celebrating the death of Jesus of Nazareth. 
the carpenter's son who was executed some 2,000 years ago. And Jesus had a very short but remarkable life, born into poverty to a very young country couple. And at the age of 33, his life was abruptly brought to an end by a conspiracy between the religious leaders of the day and the Roman rulers of the province. And I think I'm right in saying none of us here were close to Jesus in the sense that none of us are his relatives. And yet we're all here, and not just us, around the world over the next 24 hours, we tend to be at the front of these celebrations in Australia. Around the world, people are going to stop and remember this day and this event and this person and his death. Roughly a third of the world. And such is the emotion attributed to this man's death, Jesus of Nazareth, that we call it Good Friday. The brutal death of Jesus of Nazareth is celebrated as good news. And I think it's worth stopping and asking the question, why? What's so significant about this one death over and against all other deaths that have occurred throughout history that we call it Good Friday? And I take it, the simple answer is this, because people through history have all said that when they've understood the events of his death, when they've believed the miracle that occurred at the cross, and they've received the Christ who died there, they've been absolutely transformed by it. And I want to speak today about how we can be transformed by this man's death. And it's interesting, when you think about transformation, it is a very redolent idea here in our manly culture. I mean, just go around and see how many gyms there are. See how many different health classes there are. And I love one quote from an American visitor who came visiting one of our members and he went for a walk in the morning at about 6.30, 7 o'clock and just said, this place is like one great outdoor gymnasium. (laughs) And you just have to be down the beachfront to see all the personal trainers. And why are we doing it? Because we want to be changed and transformed. I mean, I swim with the pink caps. I love it. It's great for my health. And let me just get us to think about that in the context of diets because um, there's some interesting studies done on diets. One was done over in America at Harvard University and it said that at any one time, a third of their nation is on a diet. Now, I'm not going to do a scientific research study here and get you to put your hands up who's on a diet, but I strongly suspect there'll be many of us here. Yes, thank you. We have one down the front. Forced into it, there you go. Here's the sobering statistic. Weight loss dieting research shows one-third to two-thirds of the weight is regained within one year. And within five years, almost all of it is regained. In other words, don't even bother. (laughs) And when you have a shop like Anita's, you go, it's just not fair. (laughs) We're talking today, though, about something that is far more profound than a diet or a body transformation. I'm not talking about a quick religious fix that gives you joy for a season, like a successful diet or a successful campaign in the gym. Because often down the track, that fix becomes a passing fad that you abandon for some other new thing. That is not what we're talking about today. 
We're talking about a truth that absolutely will transform and change your life in every possible way. The change that Jesus brings is deep, it's profound and it's eternal. And what's remarkable is that this transformation has been across all ages since Jesus' death. It's across all cultures since he died. It's across all ages of people. The testimonies of people who've been changed range from convicted um, prisoners right through to the heads of government, from tradies to leaders of industry, from young adults to ageing senior citizens. He gives hope, he gives forgiveness, he heals broken lives. He turns selfish lives around in the most profound ways. And that's not just the story of people out there, it's the story of people here, it's my story of encountering Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and going from someone who was self-seeking and after the good life to wanting to serve him and love other people. Jesus' death transformed lives and I want to say to us this morning, he can transform yours this day. And for that to happen, three things need to take place as we think about transformation. Firstly, we need to understand the events of the cross And I'm going to spend a bit of time just going through what took place. But secondly, we need to believe, sorry, the miracle of what took place on the cross. And then lastly, receive the Christ of the cross. Let's think firstly about the events of the cross. Jesus of Nazareth was an innocent man. I don't think that's a debated topic or a debated truth. Unlike all humanity, myself included... Jesus did not die for his own sins. Now, I'm not dead yet, but I will die as a sinful person. And I put it to us, all of us will. Yet despite his innocence, he was killed like a common criminal. And two significant actions took place in the last week of his life that I think were the final nails in his coffin, so to speak. Firstly, When Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, and he did it deliberately knowing that he would die, he did it very pointedly by riding an unridden colt into the city. And what he was doing was fulfilling a very well-known prophecy amongst the Jews of the day. And this prophecy spoke of how the king, the coming king, would ride into Jerusalem on an unridden colt. Let me read it to you. It's from Zechariah 9.9. You may not be familiar with it, but they were very familiar with it in that day. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus absolutely orchestrated this event and with great sense of purpose, rode in as the coming king. But secondly, once he was in the city, Jesus went to the temple and overturned the tables of the priests, selling their wares. And in doing this, he was now not just proclaiming that he was the king, he was acting as the king, who had come to his temple. And the Jewish leaders of the day were outraged. Who does this man think he is? And so they devised a way for him to be handed over to Pilate to be killed. And even though he was innocent, he would die the death of a sinner. And it's amazing, even at his trial before Pilate that we've had read today, Pilate knew he was innocent. 
Let me reread those words. What shall I do then with this Jesus who you call the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. And they shouted all the louder, crucify him. He died as an innocent man with no sin. But he was also beaten and mocked. There's this harsh brutality about the death of Jesus. After being sentenced to death, the Roman soldiers mocked him as a pretender king. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his, fe- on his head. Then they put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Oh, hail king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again and again. And later on the crowds who passed by, they also mocked him. The chief priests mocked him. The teachers of the law, they mocked him. Even the elders mocked him. And I have no doubt that if we were there, we would most likely have mocked him as well. And in the words of Isaiah the prophet, some 800 years prior in that famous prophecy in Isaiah 53, Isaiah predicted this. He said he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we, dis- we esteemed him not. Innocent, mocked, abused, but also crucified. The gospel accounts don't give many details here at the point of his death. It's interesting. They all paint a common, simple picture. Verse 31. After they mocked him, they took off the robe, put on his own clothes, and then they led him, led him away to crucify him. And crucifixion was the ancient world's summum supplicium, the ultimate penalty. It was a gruesome and horrific way to die that was designed to both humiliate the person as well as prolong their agony. It was torture. And it was so horrific that no Roman citizen of the day was actually allowed to be crucified unless there was a direct edict from Caesar. And among the Jews, the horror of the cross was even greater. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. These are the words of Moses. And he describes here the reality of crucifixion when he said, anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. So the Jews in wanting Jesus to be crucified wanted him to face not just the ultimate death from a human point of view, they wanted him cursed by God. But what was remarkable and what is commented on by the gospel writers is not the gory details, though you will see movies that make much of it. What they make much of it is actually the events that surround this death of crucifixion. And those events that surround the cross help us to understand the cross and what's taking place. You see, the text records with a great simplicity what happened. Verse 37. Above his head they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. 
And what Pilate did, and we know this from John in his recollection of the death of Jesus, it was actually written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin and Greek. And ironically, what Pilate was proclaiming was not just to the Jews of the day, but literally to the world, in the languages of the world of that day, this is the king. And he died as the king in the company of sinners, one on his right, one on his left. And there's an incredible power to that. One of the things that Jesus was most well known for in his ministry was the way he loved sinners. And I think it's fair to say he was far more comfortable in the presence of sinners than in the religious people of the day. And so it's no surprise that he ends up dying with them at his right and left hand. But with his arms stretched out towards them, he dies abandoned by God. And for me, this is the most striking part of his death. In the hour of greatest need, God is nowhere to be seen. From noon, we read, until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to stop and just think about that moment. The cry from the cross by Jesus was one of being abandoned by God, his Father. He was the Son of God and God the Father was nowhere to be seen. All through his life, there was this incredible intimacy. As Jesus walked and ministered, he would so often withdraw and pray and be with the Father. He performed miracles and taught as one who had God with him in everything. There was this incredible intimacy and closeness between the Father and the Son. Yet in his time of greatest need, God the Father is nowhere to be seen. A subject that is rarely referenced, yet alone spoken about these days, is hell. And you need to stop and understand the reality of this to make sense of this moment. This abandonment by God. Hell is a place that we don't talk about at all. But yet it is real. And one of the ways you could define hell is it's the absence of God and all of his goodness. It is the place where all life all relationship, all sense of meaning and purpose are stripped away and gone. It is a condition that goes on for eternity where you have no one, you know no one, where there is nothing good. There is only loneliness, regret, pain and suffering. It's an awful place that the Bible tells us to avoid at all costs. It's what Jesus said himself. 
And in his descriptions of her, one of them is of people with this deep, deep sense of regret alone. One of the great lies of the devil is that people are convinced they can go and be there with their mates. There is no mateship in hell. Everything that is good is gone. And this is what Jesus is enduring on the cross. Everything that we count good stripped away and gone. And as he looks up, he does not see his loving heavenly father, but rather is facing his judgment. He is abandoned by him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the story of Good Friday. Of Jesus of Nazareth. The miracle worker loved by crowds. Dying as an innocent man, beaten and mocked before being led out to the place of the skull and nailed to a cross and slowly and painstakingly being killed. He is there under the wrath of God. And he is dying between two sinners. And God, his father, his loving father, is nowhere to be seen or heard, but rather he is experiencing his wrath. It is the most sobering event in the record books of history. You may well ask, how does this awful event transform my life? Is it because it's an act of incredible love and sacrifice? Because I've heard that said. And some would say, yes, that's what it is, this incredible act of love and sacrifice. But if it's just that, just an incredible act of love and sacrifice, I don't understand how that story has any credibility to explain the extraordinary power that is unleashed by this event in the lives of people generating good through all of history. You see, many people have laid down their life in the most extraordinary of circumstances, heroic circumstances, for the benefit of others. In just a few days, literally I think it's about 10 days, we're going to be celebrating the 107th Anzac Day. And rightly so, let me say. And on that day, we will remember the sacrifice of many and we will keep the memory alive of people who've lost their lives. I have great uncles who are buried in the fields of France from World War I. And I know my story is not singular. So many of us have lost loved ones in our family history. And so while it's right and good that we will stop and remember their sacrifice, what is plainly obvious to me is that there is no one person who gave their life in that war or any other campaign that we honour over and above another and say, that person changed my life. No, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has far more profound significance than just an incredible act of sacrifice. What we need to believe is the miracle of the cross. Because you see, this event is not just understood in human terms, it is a supernatural event. 
Any explanation that sees the death of Jesus in mere human terms and mere human suffering, though both of those are real, fail to significantly understand what is going on in that day, in that hour at the cross. This is not just a story of human suffering and torture and abandonment. It's an event where God is profoundly at work to change history. Profoundly. In the very face of human evil and suffering. God showed up and continues to show up to address evil and suffering and sin and deal with it once and for all. You see, as Jesus died, God's judgment was descending. That's why he looks up and feels abandoned because the judgment of God is descending. We read in verse 45, as noon, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Whenever in scripture darkness descends in the middle of the day, it is not a good sign. It is a sign that God's judgment has come. And on the cross, Jesus was judged in our place for our sin. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the one who knew no sin became sin for us and he drank the cup of God's wrath. He faced hell on that cross for us so that we wouldn't have to. As Jesus died, heaven's door was opened. After the darkness came the light. Verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. In John's gospel, what we are told is he said the word tetelestai, which means it is finished. The price has been paid. And at that moment, and it's interesting, Matthew's the only one to record this, but it is profound what took place. The curtain of the temple, sorry, that's the next part, this Matthew's, I'm getting ahead of myself. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's this incredibly symbolic act as literally the barrier physically for the Jewish and Gentile people into the presence of God is destroyed. Heaven is open is what has been communicated to the world. The door to heaven is wide open to those who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, as Jesus dies, new life comes from God. This is the part that Matthew only records. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised and came to life. I just love that picture. Having paid the price for sin, having absorbed hell, having heaven's doors open, Literally, the earth is shaking with a sense of joy. <laughs> and dead people are coming back to life. And it was this incredibly powerful symbol of the new life that flows from what Christ has done for us. Friends, it does not matter how much we have failed God, sin is paid for. We do not need to be afraid of God's judgment because God in his son has borne it for us. Hell is averted. Heaven is opened. New life is available. And all this by the death of the man, Jesus Christ. It is miraculous. Do you understand what happened at the cross? And importantly, 
Do you believe what Jesus has done for you? Do you believe it? Because that's what he calls us to do, to believe in what he's done for us, to trust in it, and then to receive him as king. At the cross, we discover a God who loves us in ways that we can never understand. We discover a God who wipes the slate clean. It does not matter how far away we've been. He wipes our sins away. At the cross, we find a God who calls us home, who says, come to me. And at the cross, the price has been paid and grace and hope and acceptance flow. And all we need to do if we are to receive this hope and grace and love is to receive him as king and to believe in what he's done for us. I love the way the narrative finishes. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God. And I think it's such a beautiful picture that those who are most considered far away from God, the Roman soldiers, are the ones who work it out. Surely this man is the son of God. Let me finish by just asking us this question. On this Good Friday, as we stop and we reflect, what do you see when you look at the cross? Do you just see a magnificently innocent man dying an unjust and brutal death? Or do you see more? Do you see God in his love giving his son to us and for us? taking your judgment, opening heaven's door for you, bringing new life to you. Do you see this? He calls you to come, to trust in him and make him your king. And we do that very simply by admitting that we have failed him and inviting him to be king in our life. I want to just get us to stop now and have a moment to reflect on where we are with God and what is our response being to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he our king? Do we understand what he's done for us? And as you're reflecting on that, Dave and Christy and Hugo are going to come up and just play a song for us to listen to. It's a song we know actually, Mercy, but I just want to invite you to sit there and listen and ask the question, what do I see when I look at the cross?